Um, <clears throat> we're continuing through First Peter today. We're uh, we're getting towards the end. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to First Peter chapter four, and we're going to be uh, starting in verse twelve today. So as as you know, um, Peter has been uh, talking a lot about what it is to suffer. Uh, as a Christian, and more, more specifically, even though he keeps talking about suffering, what he really means is, is this idea of persecution, right? We, we can suffer in this world because of things like death and disease and things that are beyond our control, uh, and we, we can suffer in those things, but as a Christian, we, we can suffer uh, with persecution because of our faith in Christ, and, and this is what Peter uh, has been talking about today. And so as we look at uh, verses 12 to 19, I want to look at five, and don't, don't let this scare you because we're going to go through them quickly, but five kind of aspects of, of what I'm calling Christian suffering. What I mean by Christian suffering is persecution, meaning that, that people uh, or things in this world come against us because of our faith in Christ, uh, and to some extent it is within our control. Something I've thought a lot about uh, as, as I've studied the life of the Apostle Paul is that if he would just shut up, a lot of his troubles would, would go away. Right? If, if he wouldn't go into public and, and stir the pot by preaching Christ, maybe, maybe he could be a little more low-key and go house to house, right? Uh, and maybe it wouldn't be such a big deal if he could just... So, so persecution is, is a little bit within our control um, in, in how we engage the public in matters of faith. And so, so today when we're talking about suffering, it's Christian suffering, persecution, and the five aspects that I want to look at is the certainty of persecution or Christian suffering, the privilege of Christian suffering, the testimony of Christian suffering, the effect of Christian suffering, and the outcome of Christian suffering. The certainty, the privilege, the testimony, the effect, and the outcome of Christian suffering. So as we begin uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he, he starts off by referring to the people as beloved. Now, this is a term of endearment. Think about your grandpa calling you in and saying, son, we've got to sit down and talk about something important here, right? This term of endearment kind of tells us that what Peter's about to say is pretty important, and, and, and what he said up to this point has been important as well, but he's coming to this point in the letter where he says, beloved, calls him by this term of endearment, kind of demanding attention to what he's about to say or demanding some extra attention because of what he's about to say, the truth that Peter is speaking uh, to the people to whom he's writing because he loves them, and he's not holding anything back from them. And he says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now again, up to this point in the letter, Peter has talked a lot about suffering, and by this point in the letter, we shouldn't be surprised about this idea of suffering. But even apart from Peter's letter, Jesus told us that those who follow him will suffer because our Savior suffered. Right? The, the world didn't like Jesus all that much. And so those who follow Jesus, the world isn't going to like us all that much either. And of all the things that, that we might reject in the Bible, maybe not overtly, but this idea of Christian suffering, we, we don't like it. We don't like to talk about it. We would like to pretend that suffering doesn't exist. Matter of fact, if you're like me, we spend a lot of our lives trying to avoid persecution as much as we possibly can. Even what I mentioned already, just this idea, like if the Apostle Paul would have just toned it down, 
right? Maybe people wouldn't have beat him up everywhere that he went, right? That's how my mind works, right? Like I want to, I want to try to kind of thread the needle and try to try to engage my faith in public, but I want to do it in such a way where people aren't going to think that I'm a weirdo or where people aren't going to like me, right? That's important to me. It's important to all of you as well. And so what Peter's going to do today is he's helping us build a theology of suffering. And if you don't have a theology of suffering, of Christian suffering, of persecution, when it comes your way, you are going to be surprised. And this is why Peter's saying don't be surprised because he's building for us this theological idea that persecution is a thing in the life of the Christian. Earlier this week, I don't know how many of you tuned into our table talk, but we talked about global missions, and, and I recounted a story of a couple that I knew that were friends of my parents growing up, and uh, there came a point in their life where they uh, felt the call to uh, be missionaries in China. And, and I don't know how it is now compared to how it was back then, but, but in the 80s, uh, they had to be underground, and they were doing things that were illegal in China, smuggling Bibles in and having secret meetings and these kinds of things. Uh, and they devoted probably close to 30 years of their life to that. Um, and so for me, from an early age, it was just kind of baked into me, like these are the kind of things that Christians do. We take risks, and we do things that could get us in trouble. We do things that, that might be illegal in certain parts of the world because of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter is reminding us that, that persecution, Christian suffering will come and to not be surprised by it. Again, we avoid suffering, typically, uh, most of us at all costs. And just to speak to kind of our current cultural moment, we see many Christians that are more invested in political victory far more than kingdom proclamation. We're willing to suffer for our political victory. We're willing to stand up in public and, and espouse the ideals of making America great again but we don't stand up in public and, and proclaim the goodness of God and His kingdom we, because we don't want to suffer for that. We'll suffer at the cause of political victory, but we won't suffer at the cause of kingdom proclamation. Political victory involves fighting for rights, whereas kingdom victory, as Peter is telling us, involves laying down our rights, and it involves suffering, legitimate suffering, legitimate persecution, for what appears to be a loss, though it's not permanent. And so we get this backwards, right? We, we fight for political victory for the here and now for what appears to be a win, although that's not permanent either. Yet we're not willing to lay down our rights and suffer for kingdom proclamation for what appears to be a loss now, even though we know that's not permanent either, right? And so Peter is telling us, don't be surprised at the fiery trial as you engage your faith in public, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. He calls this a fiery trial, and not if it comes, but when it comes. There's an underlying assumption here that Peter is giving us that it's going to be difficult engaging your faith in public. It's going to bring trials. It's going to bring persecution your way. And all we have to do is read our Bible to see that's absolutely true. Not only the Apostle Paul, all of the disciples they got in trouble. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but they got in trouble for engaging their faith in the public. So Peter's saying, don't be surprised when this fiery trial comes upon you. Not if, but when. But what we have to remember is that Christian suffering is under the purview of a God who loves us. 
Again, we try to avoid suffering at all costs. But if God is sovereign, which is to say that if God is in control of everything, if God orders everything in the universe, which our Bible tells us that He does, that if God is in control of everything, the persecution that you and I do endure for engaging our faith in public is not outside of His watch. It's not outside of His reach. And if it's not outside of His watch, if it's not outside of His reach, then what? Not only is that true, but the Bible tells us that God works together for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose, Romans 8, 28. Which is to say that if you belong to God, not that everything is good, but everything works for your good. And that includes persecution for our faith. That includes the suffering that we so desperately try to avoid. Our Bible tells us that God is in control of all things everywhere all of the time, including the bad things that happen to you. Our Bible tells us that God is perfect in all of His ways. And as He orders the events of your life and my life, the persecution, the Christian suffering that comes our way for engaging our faith in the public just might be part of God's perfect plan for you and for me. God's not surprised by our suffering. There's never a moment when God is sitting on His heavenly throne scratching His head thinking, how did that happen? That that moment never happens in heaven. God is not looking down upon the universe saying, man, like things have gone off the rails because Christians are being persecuted. No. Even just a cursory read of the book of Acts shows us that it was persecution that set the early church on fire as it spread throughout the world. Right? We're told at the beginning of the book of Acts that the message of the gospel was going to be made known in, in Jerusalem, locally, in Judea, regionally, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there comes this moment, I think it's in about Acts chapter 14 or 15, where they come back and they report to the church and they say, guess what? The gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you know how it got there? It got there by Christians being persecuted and fleeing persecution. And they took with them the gospel as they went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of what was the known world at that time. So God's not surprised that our suffering, in fact, our suffering, our persecution for our faith might just be part of God's perfect will for His church. I say might, but it really is part of God's perfect will for His church. Peter talking about fiery trials indicates to us that the suffering that we undergo as Christians is going to be a particularly difficult suffering, right? When somebody cuts you off in traffic, we, we don't call that a fiery trial, do we? It's not that big of a deal at the end of the day. When you have a dispute with your neighbor, you don't call that a fiery trial, right? But if, if you lose your job because of your faith, that, that's a reality. I've been seeing some headlines about thing, things like that lately. That might be a fiery trial, right? If you're, if you're harmed, there, there are places in the world where people are harmed simply because they take on the name Christian. That's a fiery trial. If you end up on a YouTube video with your head being lopped off because you're a Christian, that's a fiery trial. And Peter's saying, don't be surprised at these particularly difficult trials, 
Not if they come, but when they come. And so it kind of begs the question, well, why do they come? If it's, if it's an inevitability that we are as Christians going to suffer in this way, if Jesus suffered and if those who follow Jesus will also suffer, what's the purpose in it? Like, is God, like, is he mad at us? Is he just mean? Does he want us to suffer because of our wrongdoings? No. P- Peter tells us, not be surprised by the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you. So there's a purpose in our suffering. That helps a little bit to know that it's not for nothing, right? That, that might not help us to embrace this idea of suffering and running out the door right now saying, I'm going to go look for persecution, but it helps to know that there's a purpose in our suffering. Our suffering is to test us. It's not for nothing. But then that kind of begs another question is, okay, so there's a test. So the suffering tests us. Well, for whose benefit is the test? For whose benefit is this test? Is God sitting up in heaven saying, I need to test these guys to see how they do? Remember, God's sovereign. God's in control of everything. God sees everything. God knows everything. God orders everything. God holds everything together. Nothing happens in the entirety of the cosmos that's outside of his watchful eye. So does God really need to know if you and I are going to pass a test? He already knows. It's kind of like in the Bible when God asks questions, it's not that he doesn't know the answer. The questions that God asks in the Bible, like I think of when Adam and Eve sinned and they hid from him and God comes down into the garden and he says, where are you? It's not that he didn't know where they were. Right? That was God being loving and God being gentle to his children who just blew it. This test that Peter talks about, this test is not for God's benefit so he can breathe a sigh of relief saying, oh good, they passed. That's not for his benefit. These tests that Peter talks about, it's for my benefit and for your benefit. Something I've thought a lot about in my life over the last year with respect to suffering is that so often our faith, the faith that we claim to have, can be really just theoretical until it becomes tested. Right? We come here every week and we, we hear the Bible and we, we go to home groups and we go to Bible studies and we, we hear about all of these things and that's all well and good and I'm glad that we have opportunities to do that and we should take advantage of every opportunity to do that. But until your faith is tested, it's not much more than theoretical. Until you have an opportunity to put it into practice. And so with respect to these fiery trials that come upon us, they come upon us to test us. I think one purpose in these is that we can come out of the other side of these fiery trials and we can look back and say, I made it through and my faith is still intact. There might be some chinks in the armor, but I made it through and my faith is intact. And, and now all of a sudden what was theoretical before the fiery trial it's not so much theoretical anymore because it's been put into practice. Does that make sense? And so there's a sense in which we can say, God, thank you for the fiery trials. Even though this is not what I would wish for myself, this isn't the story that I would write for somebody else, if these are the things that God uses to test our faith and to show us that our faith is genuine and real, and if these are the things that God uses to grow our faith and to strengthen our faith, then thank God for that. 
because I'll tell you, if my life was easy, if your life was easy all of the time, like if the easy button were a real thing and we could just push it whenever things got hard, how would you ever know if your faith is genuine? You wouldn't know because there would never be a chance to test it. There would never be a chance to prove it. And God loves us enough in His sovereignty and His controlling of everything to say, I'm going to order some hard things for your life, Christian, not because I'm mean, not because you've done enough wrong things that this is just your penance, but because I love you and because I want to show you that your faith can be real and that your faith can be active. And if that's true, why would we avoid it? If that's true, why wouldn't we maybe this is going to sound weird, but why wouldn't we say, God, help me to have opportunities to strengthen my faith. Help me to have opportunities to know that my faith is real. So these kinds of tests of these fiery trials, they're for our sake so that we can come out the other side of them with a faith that not only is intact, but a faith that maybe even was strengthened through a trial. And Peter says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, what he means by that is this should be a normal part of the Christian life. Suffering, persecution. As we engage our faith in a public sort of a way and we get pushback from it, and we get difficulties because of it, don't be surprised because this is just the normal Christian life. This is how Christians look different from the rest of the world, right? Is because we engage our faith publicly. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted, not may be persecuted, not that it's likely that you'll be persecuted, and not some of you, but all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. It comes with the territory of being a Christian in the world. And so, really, at the end of the day, this, this is what we sign up for. We sign up to invite persecution into our lives knowing, as the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You ever seen somebody acting foolish out in public? Right? We persecute those people. You ever seen somebody on a street corner saying weird things and doing weird things? Like we laugh at those people when we drive by them, don't we? The message of the cross, the Bible tells us, is foolishness. Right? Pe- people are going to they're going to push back on us. They're going to poke fun at us just for being Christians in the world. And it just comes with the territory for all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And so first, that, so there's the certainty of suffering, right? The certainty of Christian suffering. We can't avoid it if we desire to live a godly life. Verses 13 to 15, the privilege then of Christian suffering. Peter says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. 
So immediately, Peter's talking about the certainty of Christian suffering. This is, this is what we sign up for. It's unavoidable for the Christian, but rejoice. And if you're like me, I'm just like, hey, wait a second, what? Rejoice. rejoice and, rejoicing and suffering are not two words that we usually put together. It seems like they would be mutually exclusive, meaning that you can't suffer and you can't rejoice at the same time. It's one or the other. But Peter says, rejoice. And so my analytical brain says, okay, in what do we rejoice and why would we rejoice in it? Right? I'm, I'm an inquisitive person, so I ask a lot of questions. And so those questions come to my mind. And Peter answers these questions. So he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So in what do we rejoice? We rejoice that we can share in the sufferings of Christ. And again, that doesn't sound really appealing to us. Nobody wants to suffer. So why would we rejoice in the sufferings of Christ? Our Savior suffered. And if we suffer as our Savior suffered, that means that we're being conformed to His likeness. It means that we're living as much as we can in the manner that our Savior lived. In other words, we're becoming like Him. And you know what that means? That means that, that God is at work in us because that's His doing, not our doing. Right? I, I don't work to make myself more like Christ. He works to make me more like Him, and that's true for you too. And so as we're willing to take on persecution, if, like the Apostle Paul, we're not willing to tone it down, knowing that that's going to bring negative results to us, that that tells us something about our faith. It tells us something about the tested genuineness of our faith. And we can rejoice to say that this is God's work in me, that I'm willing to engage my faith publicly. So we rejoice insofar as we're being conformed to the likeness of Christ as we share in His sufferings. And Peter says that you also, in verse 13, rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. There's something about persecution that has to do with glory. One of the reasons I don't want to be persecuted is that I don't want people to think I'm a weirdo. I don't want people to not like me. I don't want to have to go out in public and fear that somebody's going to slander me or pick an argument with me. I don't, I don't want that, right? I want to be liked. You want to be liked. I want my glory to shine when I'm out in public, if I'm honest with myself. But Peter tells us that the Christian who has an authentic faith rejoices that the glory of God is being revealed. And the glory of God is revealed in our suffering. One famous pastor has a famous saying that says that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. In other words, when we look to God for everything in our life, when He's the beginning and the end for us, He's never more glorified in the life of the Christian when we're more satisfied in Him than anything else that this life has to offer. So when it matters that my satisfaction comes more from who God is and what He's done for me than what people can do for me, that's when God becomes glorified in your life and in my life. 
And so we rejoice insofar as that we're being conformed to the likeness of Christ, and we rejoice that it's His glory that's being revealed. Verse 14, he goes on to say that if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now again, this isn't something that we necessarily go looking for. Right? Nobody's going to go out from here today and, and go find an opportunity for somebody to insult you for the name of Christ. It's just not how we're wired. I used to know a guy years ago when I was in high school. <clears throat> he was a truck driver for Les Schwab and, and lived a pretty hard life. And he had this story that we, where he was just radically converted to Christ. His life just kind of turned on a dime. You know, went from just being a really rough guy um, to being, you know, just a, a really stellar Christian man. And in his zeal, when he would drive his truck, he was a long-haul driver, when he would drive his truck, he would get on the CB and he would tie up a channel for hours just preaching the entire time that he drove. And nobody liked him because he, he, was, he had this zeal, but, but he didn't have much care or concern for other people. There were times where he would literally stand out on a street corner with a bullhorn and he would block the entrance to this one particular business that was on the corner, wouldn't let people in and just scream it in their face, you know, turn or burn. And again, like there, there's a sense in which like you kind of appreciate maybe a, a zeal that a guy like that has. But he brought on a suffering in his own life that wasn't helpful. He was called all kinds of names by all kinds of people. People would yell things at him throw hand gestures up as they drove by when he was on the corner. And he was insulted, and he, he took that as, like, like he kind of drew some energy from that, thinking, okay, I'm, I'm doing good work for God because people are calling me names. This isn't what Peter's talking about here. He's not talking about that kind of suffering. Like, that guy needed to tone it down, for sure. And he didn't. And to this day, like, he still lives his life that way. And I, I don't doubt that he loves God. But that's not the kind of name-calling that Peter's saying that you should rejoice in. Like, if people call you names because you're a jerk, even if you do it in the name of Christianity, that's not the point. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, if you're insulted because of the foolish message that we have to preach, not because you're being a jerk, not because you're, you're blocking people from going into a building, but because you just can't stop talking about Jesus, that's a worthy insult. That's the kind of insults that the Apostle Paul got, and worse, because he would get beat up when he went places. But it wasn't because he was a jerk. It was because he loved people so much. He loved the things that God loves so much that he couldn't not talk about Jesus wherever he went and in whatever he did. When you live like that, Peter says that you're blessed. And you're blessed because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests upon you. So again, this isn't your work. This is God's work in you. This is the spirit of God in you, the helper that God gives us at work in your life and in my life. That's why we're blessed because God is at work in us. Think about the early, the early disciples. I don't know if you've ever looked into history to see kind of what came of these guys. Maybe you've heard some things over the years, but, but do, you, do you know what happened to all these guys that followed Jesus? We have history that tells us that Peter and Paul, for example, they, they were both martyred in Rome around 66 AD under Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded. 
Peter was crucified, but he was crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't feel that he was worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. Thomas, you, you remember doubting Thomas? Remember the guy that said, I got, I got to see the, the holes in his hands and his side for myself? Tradition has Thomas preaching as far east as India, right? He was a missionary that, that traveled some miles. He actually, history, tradition would tell us that he founded a sect of Christianity in India. And they claim, nobody knows for sure, but they claim that he died when he was pierced with spears by four different soldiers, martyred for the cause of Christ. The guy that doubted Christ himself died for Christ. Philip, we're told, had a powerful ministry in North Africa uh, and then later on uh, in Asia Minor. And he converted the wife of a Roman leader. And in retaliation, this Roman leader had Philip arrested and tortured to death simply by proclaiming the message of the gospel to somebody that he shouldn't have. And they came to faith and they killed him for it. Matthew, remember Matthew? He was a tax collector and, and he has a gospel account that he wrote. He ministered later on in Persia and Ethiopia. Some of the oldest reports say that he wasn't martyred, but other reports say that he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. How about Bartholomew? Do you remember him? He was a widespread missionary, and he traveled uh, all over. He went to India, tradition tells us, with Thomas. He went to Armenia, also to Ethiopia and southwest Arabia. So this guy put on some miles. There are various accounts of how he met his death, but all of them say that he was martyred because of his faith. He was killed because he couldn't tone it down. James, the son of Alphaeus, now, there are a few different James that are mentioned in the New Testament, and because of tradition and record-keeping, there's a little bit of confusion as to which is which, but it's thought that James, the son of Alphaeus, as he ministered in Syria, the, the Jewish historian Josephus reported that he was stoned, which means they threw rocks at you in an effort to kill you, and that didn't kill him, and so then he was clubbed to death after he was stoned because of his faith in Christ. Simon the Zealot, tradition tells us that as he was ministering in Persia, that he was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. So he wouldn't, he wouldn't bow and worship to the false god. And so those people killed him. Matthias, remember him? He was the apostle chosen to replace Judas. Tradition tells us that he was in Syria with Andrew and he was burnt to death. That'd be a terrible way to go. How about John? John, the writer of the Gospel of John and, and the epistles in the New Testament. He's generally thought to have died a natural death from old age, but there was a moment in John's life where he was in exile and they tried to boil him in oil in order to kill him. And as terrible of a way as that is to die, he didn't die. That would be an even worse way to not die, to survive that, right? And John reportedly survived that. This is what Peter's talking about when, when he says, when you're slandered for the name of Christ, that you can rejoice, or that you're insulted in the name of Christ, that you are blessed. 
because the Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory is on you, and it's only the Spirit of God, only His glorified Spirit that would cause any of us to live in this way. Only the Spirit of God would cause us to not shut up when our life is at stake. Then he goes on to say that, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Right? The, the suffering he's been talking about up to this point really is, is injustice. It's unjust that a Christian would suffer simply for being a Christian, but it is what we sign up for and it is what we should expect. But when you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler, that, that's just suffering. Right? When you murder somebody and you go to jail for that, that's just when you steal something and you have to, to pay restitution, that's just, right? That's deserved suffering. You have that coming and I have that coming. And so Peter is making a distinction that as Christians, we suffer in an unjust way, but we don't complain about the injustice of it. We suffer in an unjust way, but instead of complaining about the injustice of it, we rejoice that we can at least be a little bit like our Savior, that we can be at least a little bit like Jesus, who ultimately suffered so that you and I could be brought to know God. One of my favorite movies, maybe, maybe my all-time favorite movie, Braveheart. Have you all seen Braveheart? I love that movie. I love Braveheart. It's a story of a guy named William Wallace, and he's a Scot. He's a Scotty lad. And they suffer under, sorry, that was a bad accent, bad impression. But, um, Scottish accents are so cool. Like, you could say anything with a Scottish accent, and some glued to it. But anyway, he, he suffered under, under the tyranny of English rule. And not to spoil the story if you haven't seen it, but his wife is murdered under this English tyranny, and all of a sudden, William Wallace embarks on this quest to bring freedom to his people, to free them from English tyranny. And it comes at, it's already come at great cost in that his wife was murdered. But, but ultimately, this quest cost him his life, this quest for freedom. It cost him his life. And, and it just got me to thinking about the times that we are willing to suffer. Sometimes we are willing to suffer. Some of us work jobs that we hate. We, we work a career of jobs that, that we hate, and it's just a means to an end. Right, to build up retirement so we can live comfortably. Not saying that's a bad thing. Just saying that sometimes we suffer. We're willing to suffer a job that we don't like because it provides down the road something that we want it to provide for us. Sometimes we can live in a location that we don't like because it fits our budget. Again, it's a means to an end. Right? Sometimes we can put up with people that we don't like, that we'd rather not be around because somehow it serves a purpose to us. As I think about the story of William Wallace, he, he suffered because of what was to come. He suffered ultimately for, for a freedom that he would never get to experience himself. He gave his life so that others after him could experience this freedom, but he himself never got to experience it. And I get to thinking about our, our Christian lives are we willing to suffer for the cause of Christ because of what's to come? Or are we so short-sighted that we can't think past the here and the now? And I think for most of us, we're just short-sighted and we can't think past the here and the now. This time that we have on this earth, it's just, it's a blip on the radar in the scope of eternity. 
right? Or are we thinking with an eternal perspective? And this is what faith does. This is what authentic, genuine faith does. It compels us to live for something better. And it compels us to suffer so that we can, so that we endure for that something that's better. So the question becomes for us, where does our faith lie? Does my faith lie right now more in a political victory, for example, than it does in in a kingdom victory later? This takes us to the next aspect of suffering in verse 16, the testimony of Christian suffering. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Again, it's not if, but it's when. And although, as we've talked about, we do have a choice to some extent in how much persecution we invite into our lives, Peter's talking about persecution for our faith as a testimony to the object of our faith. Persecution for living in such a way that it stands out in the world. And he says, let him not be ashamed. And it calls our attention back to Romans chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul reminds us to not be ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel, Paul says, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Peter tells us in verse 16 to let us glorify God in that name, in the name being called Christian, in the name of being called God's own child, that we would glorify God in that name and that we wouldn't be ashamed of it, realizing that in that name there's a power that comes with it and a power that doesn't belong to you and me, but a power that comes from God. We we bear God's name being called Christians, and we also bear His image, the Bible tells us. We, We bear His likeness. And when we're ashamed of that, that might tell us that that maybe there's something wrong with our faith. Maybe there's a disconnect with our faith. But when our faith is real and when it's genuine, and we glorify God that He has chosen us, we glorify God because we bear His image and we're not ashamed of the gospel, realizing that it's the power unto salvation. That's the game changer. We think of the people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. We're not going to go through all of it. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about These people, names that you might know from your Bible, Noah and Moses and Abraham and David and Samson, who who did these great things in the name of the Lord and they're commended for their faith. But it also talks about this other group of people in Hebrews 11.35 where it says that some of them, and we, we don't even know these people's names, says some of them, they were tortured. They refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. This is some Braveheart stuff right here. And the writer of Hebrews says, of these people, the world was not worthy. They wandered about in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth, and all of these, though commended for their faith, they didn't receive what was promised. They were working for something better, but they wouldn't actually get to realize it on this side of heaven. There's nothing more compelling than someone who suffers for their cause. 
It's what almost every movie that you've ever watched outside of romantic comedies is about. Somebody's suffering for some kind of a cause, and it compels us. And it's almost every story that we read because it's the story of Jesus. It's the story of the gospel that Jesus suffered so that you and I could come to know God. That's part of what's so compelling about the gospel. As we move into verse 17, we look at the effect of Christian suffering. Peter tells us that it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And this is referring to really a purification of of the Christian and of the church. He's not necessarily talking about like God dropping the hammer, not that kind of a judgment, but, but purification, right? Our sanctification, our being more and more conformed to the image of Christ the longer that we live. Our battling our sin in a better way as time goes on. And then he asked the question, if judgment begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel? Well, that's, that's the dropping of the hammer that he talks about right there. The Bible tells us there's going to come a day when every tongue confesses and every knee will bow before Jesus Christ as their Lord. Willingly or unwillingly, right? And this is, this is the unwilling that Peter's talking about for those who don't obey the gospel. And so suffering, persecution has a way of exposing those who truly follow Christ and those who don't truly follow Christ, right? Our suffering exposes that. If the righteous, he goes on to say, is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When he talks about scarcely, he's talking about being saved with difficulty, right? He's not saying necessarily that it's rare, although the path is narrow, Right? The path of destruction is wide. The path that leads to God is narrow. But he's talking about the difficulty that we must go through as Christians. The persecution that we must endure as Christians. In other words, salvation comes with some hardships. It comes with some difficulties in this world. If it's not challenging for you in some respect to be a Christian, if it's not hard, something isn't right. The Bible tells us that it's in our weakness that God's power is made perfect. And if we never face difficulty, where's the power of God at work in us? It's, right? The difficulties that we face give opportunity for God to show His power in our weakness. If our faith is never tested, how do we know again that it's genuine? It's through suffering that we identify with our Savior who suffered for us, and it's in difficulty where God most often reveals His power to you and to me. If that's true, why fight it? Lastly, the outcome of Christian suffering in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Therefore, in other words, in light of everything that we've just talked about, in light of the certainty that suffering is going to come, in light of the privilege that it is, in light of the testimony that it produces, in light of the effect that it has on us, in light of all of that, he says, let those who suffer according to God's will. According to God's will. Stop there for just a second. Your persecution, your Christian suffering is not an accident. It's not happenstance. It's not a mistake. 
It's according to God's will. It's God's will that we suffer. Again, because Jesus suffered, those who follow him will also suffer. So in light of all that, in the certainty of suffering that is according to God's will, according to God's grand and perfect and sovereign plan, as you suffer, as you undergo persecution, entrust your soul to a faithful creator, that we would suffer in faith. William Wallace suffered in faith that that the Scots would be free one day. And as the story goes, that, that happened, although not in his lifetime. He was entrusted to his cause. And I would ask you today, are we entrusted to the cause of Christ? Are we entrusted to the message of the gospel that even if it brings suffering and persecution our way, that we would endure it and that we would do so not complaining about the injustice of it, but we would trust our Creator who has ordered it to be a part of our lives so that we would show the world who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that we would do so in the last three words of our section, while doing good. Right? We can take on this posture as Christians that, that there's a lot of injustice in the world coming our way. I, I saw somebody last night posted on Facebook about the future. It was kind of this rant about the few churches that have remained open during the pandemic and they left their church because their church shut down and went to this church that stayed open. And it was kind of this rant about the sheeple and how we've, as the church, have, have given in to fear. And it was this long complaint, you know, mile long. And as I'm, as I'm thinking of this passage, that, that, that wasn't doing good, right? That's not entrusting your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Right? Are, are we surprised that there are powers that come against the church? We shouldn't be. Do we complain about the injustice of it? We shouldn't. Do we continue to do good in the face of injustice? We should. Not because we're great people, but because Jesus is a great Savior and He's done for us what we could and would never do for ourselves. And the gospel is the power to save. And we've all here experienced the power of the gospel unto salvation. And we ought to do the things that we can so that others can experience the power of the gospel unto salvation. And that's why we do good. I think we'll pause there. I could keep going, but we've gone long already, so I think we'll pause there, and I hope that we're, that we're challenged today by this idea of Christian suffering, Christian persecution, that we necessarily invite into our lives, that we accept, and that we accept it with the faith that God gives us, doing the good that God calls us to do. And I hope that you're encouraged by that today. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful this morning that you love us, and we're grateful uh, to the lengths to which you go so that we would come to know you that you sent your son Jesus to suffer injustice, to suffer wrongly, but that in his suffering that he did so, taking on the sin of the world, taking on my ugliness and our ugliness, our sinfulness, our unrighteousness, that he did so in order that we could be imputed to us his righteousness, 
and his beauty and his glory so that we could come to know you. And so God, help us to understand the truth of the gospel that would compel us to suffer for the cause of Christ willingly so that others could come to know you. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen.